thank you all for making an effort to be here. And uh, appreciate it. People from all the way from California here today. Jack and Barbara Hunt came to visit us. You guys are from Scotts Bluff still, right? So that's three hours away. Man, there's people from all over the place today. Very, very welcome. The scene is set, or I should say, we look on as as the uh, the church does their normal vacation Bible school. They do it every summer, and very similar to the one to last year, and very similar to the one that'll probably be next year. And it's Wednesday; it's middle of the week. The young boys have figured out that the cookies and juice happen at the same time every day. And as the teachers turn them loose from outside on the lawn from their classrooms, they have to make their way around the building to the front doors where the ladies of the church have prepared the cookies and juice. Two young men, young boys, decide that instead of running all the way around the building to get to the front doors, they are going to make their way through the building. And I don't know about you, but you've ever been in a, a church building in the sanctuary when the lights weren't on and there wasn't a bunch of people in there? It is one creepy place, right? So they knew already that taking the risk of cutting through the sanctuary was a risk in and of itself. What they ran into, they were completely not expecting Teachers turn them loose, they hit the back doors, they slam through, and they run up the center aisle, or they begin running up the center aisle. And in one of the most godlike, booming voices, a voice screams, Freeze! So, six and seven-year-old boys... When God speaks, they listen, right? So they freeze in mid-stride as they run up the center aisle. The older gentleman in a brown suit and tie, sitting in the dark in the sanctuary, lifts his finger. And the reason I say lifts his finger is because his finger is two and a half feet long. And he lifts his finger and he points right at the boys. And he says, God is watching you. What do they say? How do you respond to something like that? Oh, man. We've been caught. So they make their way up the rest of the way. And, of course, by now all the other kids are in line. And they get stuck with the, with the gooey Oatmeal cookies again. <laughs> Nothing with chocolate this time. I don't know about you, but as I grew up in the church, and as I can't say silver-haired, because most of the teachers in our, our congregation were younger, but oftentimes the, the, the Sunday school teachers were older, and they teach that, you know what? God is watching you. You better behave because God is watching you. And mothers even take us to the next step. 
Moms say, you know, I, I've got eyes on the back of my head. I can see what you're doing. Even if my back is turned, God is always watching you. It seems that it was a negative term for me. It was something that was, man, if God's always watching, he must not care or he must not like me very much because he knows what I've done. He knows what I'm capable of. He knows where my thoughts go. Must not have been, must not have been too much fun thinking about God watching. It's not, really. I want you to turn to a passage of Scripture in the book of Psalms with me. This passage is one that was brought up many times growing up, and it was one that was always taught as, God is watching you. You had better behave. God is watching you. Look at it with me, Psalms chapter 139. This one's an easy one to find because it's right in the middle of your Bible, right? And most of the time when you open your Bible, you land on Psalms anyway. Now this time we're going to Psalms chapter 139. A whole bunch of chapters in Psalms, so not a hard one to find. Before we look at this passage of Scripture, let's look to God and we're in prayer. God, thank you so much for being the God that you are. God, whether our impressions or our interpretations or our understanding of who you are maybe have been skewed all these years, maybe have been mixed up a little, God, help us today as we understand who you really are and what our worth really is. God, help us to understand better from your perspective how much we're worth and, and from your perspective what it means to be watching us, to be looking, on, looking down and be everywhere wherever we are. God, I pray that we'll be encouraged and be challenged and be convicted by the things that are, that are shared today. Bless this message. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in the middle of a series entitled Life Changing Attitudes, taken from Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. We want to change our perception. We want to change the way that we see ourselves. We want to change uh, our attitudes so that our lives can be different than the way the world is in the way the world thinks. Psalms chapter 139, I want us to look at it. It says, O Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts, even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it. Lord, you go before me and you follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. This passage was always taken by me in particularly as a, as a negative thing. God is watching you. He knows everything about you. It's a scary thing, but it can be taken the other way as well. Look at verse 5 and 6. He says, You go before me and you follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Too great for me to understand. How can I envision God as watching me and critiquing me every move I make and then also see it as wonderful. 
Let's take a look back for just a minute at the person that wrote this. David, the author, started his life on a good note. And you know that, that same Sunday school teacher that said, God is watching you? He's, she's the one that taught us, or he's the one that taught us all of those things about David and how we should be more like David, right? And it was like, you know, I, I'm never going to be like David. David played on a harp, and David you know, wore a dress, and it was just not something that, that I was ever going to be. Then she told us about how a guy lived three days in the belly of a whale, and then she told us about how Noah built this great big giant ark. I'm, I'm never going to be like that. I'm never going to measure up to that. I can, I'm never going to be able to, to be like that. Let's look back at who David really was. You've heard me tell parts of this and express parts of, of what we're going to look at. But if you look back in your Bible, and, and you can follow along if you want, or, or you can just write these down and, and go back and check up on me later. 1 Samuel chapter 17, what story do we find in 1 Samuel chapter 17? David and the giant. What's his name? Goliath. We find David and Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, and he begins what? He, he brings his brothers some, some food, right? Brings his brothers some provision, and... But what, I want you to under, but what I want you to see in this particular passage, and when I read this passage, and I've examined it more closely, I, haven't, I didn't take the, the Sunday school version of it. I actually looked at what was said. Three times God asked for it to be written. Three times in this chapter, David asks... What's going to happen for the man who kills Goliath? And the first time the answer comes back, well, you're going to get to marry the king's daughter, and they're going to completely take away the taxes for your family for the rest of their lives, which meant great wealth, right? So wealth and women were offered if you kill Goliath. So what does David do? He asks two more times, so what's going to happen for the guy who kills Goliath? Wealth and women. So a third time, what's, what's going to happen for the guy who kills Goliath? Wealth and women. Now, for a teenage boy, that was much more like me. That was much more attainable. I'm okay with serving God, but you know what? Wealth and women are pretty high on my list right down, right, right then, you know, when I was a teenage boy, and so was David. God wrote this because I believe God knew that David was going to struggle with these same things his entire life. God wanted all of us to realize that David started out with these things. He didn't just all of a sudden, way later on in life, have these problems arise. They were there from the beginning. Just because the Sunday school teacher didn't tell us that David had, had the same desires that every young man has and every young woman has, doesn't mean they're not there. God's writing this stuff. In 1 Samuel 25, David becomes very 
very attainable. Nabal calls David a name. He calls David a name, and what does what David do? He gets very angry. David gets fiery angry, and he says, men, let's ride. And at that time, he had the most amazing warriors on his side, and he was a warrior himself, not a skirt-wearing, heart-playing guy. He was a full-on warrior at this point. David said, let's ride, and he was going to go into town, and he was going to kill everyone in town. Everyone on the ranch, everyone on Nabal's ranch was going to be annihilated. Man, woman, child, everything was going to be killed. That's what his plan was. Until a very smart and beautiful woman comes along and talks David out of his rage. Once again, very normal. Move on to 2 Samuel chapter 11. David's desires sort of lead him into a direction that is sadly somewhat normal. Normal from today's standards anyway. 2 Samuel 11, David's on his rooftop watching porn. He decides to act on it and invite her in. David knew where to stand on the palace rooftop. The houses below were in close proximity. He could stand in a particular corner of the roof and watch. Bathsheba bathed every single day. He knew what channel she was on. He knew what website to click on to find her. He had servants even move one of his chairs up to that corner of the roof. He bookmarked that page on the website so he could come back to that one. Then the same hand that wrote 73 Psalms in our Bible sat down at the same desk that he wrote, probably wrote those same 73 psalms, and he wrote a letter to his general and said, I need my neighbor to die today. He needed to leave her husband out to die because he had gotten her pregnant. That's not David. Yeah, it is. Man after God's own heart? How can that be? How is that possible? Almost makes you want to want to file a lawsuit against the, the Sunday school teacher that taught you how good David was all along. It's like that's I was trying to attain that, but look, this is what he really was. Next in 2 Samuel 13. His son Amnon, who is supposed to follow in David's uh, and be next king, the next king in, in, in Israel there. And, and in reality, we probably should have, along with first and second Samuel, we should probably have first and second Amnon. There's was a different plan. Amnon struggles with his lust for his younger half-sister. She's young and beautiful. He's noticed that what an amazing woman that she is. Amnon thinks about her 24-7. He can't take his mind off of her. So his friend helps him come up with a plan. He says, pretend to be sick and request some of those, those cakes that, that Tamar makes. And when she brings them into you, 
take the opportunity. So he does. Amnon pretends to be sick. And, and David the king is concerned and he says, well, well, what do you need, son? So Amnon's plan unfolds. And he rapes his half-sister. David finds out. And the Bible says, David is angry. Well, why doesn't David do something? Why doesn't he retaliate? Why doesn't he take vengeance on Amnon for raping his sister? Well, it's pretty hard when there's a pregnant neighbor in the house and a, her dead husband funeral procession going down below on the streets. It's pretty hard to take your son in and have a conversation with him about how you treat women and how God's plan is for sexuality in the home when there's sort of a problem. The story goes on. Absalom, the next in line behind, uh, behind Amnon, gets so angry at his brother, he kills him, runs him through with a sword. Absalom runs from his dad his dad runs from him. <laughs> Absalom comes in and makes David leave the, the castle, runs him out of town, takes his dad's wives up on the rooftop and does shameful things with them. Second Samuel 18, David comes storming back into the palace and runs Absalom out into the woods and as Absalom's running through the dense forest, his long hair gets caught in the trees. His horse keeps on going and leaves him hanging there, and David's men run him through with a sword. All through David's life, he has this struggle with wealth and women. And it's a legacy that is passed down to his sons. 2 Samuel 24, David's an old man by now. And he asks for them to go count his military strength. Go take, a, go take a count and see what's going on out there. See how, many, see how strong I am. See how powerful I am. His advisors say, oh, you know, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that. It's, it's not all about you, David. David said, yeah, that's good advice, but go count my men anyway. And God sent a plague on the land. Thousands of people died because of the decision David made. David has to beg for mercy. And David passes away. But his legacy lives on. Adonijah and Solomon fight for the throne. Solomon kills his brother and gets the throne. And like his dad, takes the legacy of wealth and women to the next level. More than a thousand women, the richest man in the world, but God gives him amazing wisdom as well. And he writes some things down for us to understand. David, the one who had this extremely sketchy life, is the one that's considered a man after God's own heart. Psalms 139, verse 5, look at it with me again. It says, you go before me and you follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. In the midst of struggle, in the midst of 
falling down, in the midst of not measuring up to what we think God wants, God is with us. He's right there with us. He sees everything we do. He's right there with us. Second Chronicles 16, the first part of, of, of verse 9 says, The eyes of the Lord search the whole land in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. Proverbs 20 and verse 27 says, The light, the Lord's light penetrates the human spirit, exposing every hidden motive. God's there. He's with us. He knows what we're doing. He knows what we're thinking. And that's a great thing. The little man in our house turned 10 months this week. And... um. He used to like the little step between the kitchen and the family room. And he would go to that step. He's learning to crawl. And he would crawl up and down that step. I mean, literally all day long, if you'd let him. He would go up and down that step. And finally, we decided that it was necessary to make a permanent fixture right there at the step. And I don't know if you were there at the house while we had the blue pillow. But the blue pillow became a permanent fixture right there below that step. Because... Quite often, Corbin would forget to turn around before he went down that step. And he would just right off, right on his face. And so we put that pillow there, and he came to realize that, you know, the pillow was there. And so then he really did it more. But finally he got the hang of that one. And then he found that there's another place in the house where there's not just one of those. There's 14 of them. And it's just a little bit more risky. And so he goes to the top of the stairs and he gets right to the edge of them and puts his little hands right on the edge and looks all the way down. And then he awkwardly tries to maneuver around and tries to get his foot to go over the edge and turn around and go down them. And of course, mom and I, Carol and I, get over to the stairs and we get down below him. And we don't want to be too close because if we adjust his every move, his every loss of balance, then he won't have any respect for the steps at all. So with one hand somewhat below him and the other somewhat next to him, we guide him down the steps. And he'll go down two or three and then see, oh man, look at how much fun those would be to climb. And so he climbs back up. And then he comes down two or three and then goes back up. I'm like, why don't you just go all the way down and then all the way back up? That's just not the way he does it. As time has gone on, I've gotten farther and farther away from him. And my hands are still ready. I try to stay non-distracted because it's really scary to watch him lose his balance when he's six or seven feet above me. So far, he hasn't fallen down the stairs. But it's kind of like that with us and God. God's always watching. He's always there. He's there when we fall, but he's probably going to let us fall because if we don't fall, then we won't respect what it is that we're falling on. And his hand's there below us, even though that's kind of a bad place to be with a 10-month-old especially, because sometimes that's a pretty stinky place to be for that hand to be. 
You know, and I think God feels the same way once in a while with us. He puts his hand out, but man, it's kind of a stinky place to be catching us. We're not that clean all the time. Sort of a bad deal. God's always watching. And secondly, God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. What What does that mean? Well, he's everywhere. He rules over everything and he knows everything. Psalms 139, look at verse 7. David writes, I can never go away from your presence. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go to the grave, you are there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I go east, if I dwell in the farthest oceans to the west, even there, your hand will guide me. Your strength will support me. I could ask that the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night. But even in darkness, I cannot hide from you. To you, the night shines as bright as day. Darkness and light are the same to you. It doesn't matter where you go, God's always there. He's always going to be there. No matter where you go, Jack came in this morning and he started to talk with me and dad came up and he said, he said, God goes everywhere with us, even on vacation. You know what? That's the truth. God goes everywhere. He goes on vacation with you. He goes, he goes with you to work. He crawls underneath the car to change the oil with you. He's there. Everywhere we are, he is. You've heard the story of the young man who went to church and listening to the message. The preacher kept saying over and over and over again, God is everywhere. God is everywhere. The little boy stood up in the middle of the service and he said, God, if, if you're in my pocket, please don't eat my hamburger. God's everywhere, right? But oftentimes I take it the wrong way. Oftentimes I take it in a negative way rather than a positive way. I revert back to those thoughts of, well, God's just trying to control me and God's just trying to make me do what he wants me to do. It's not it. God is everywhere for your benefit. God's there for you. Look, there's more. God can't leave us alone. Psalms 139 and verse 13, he says, you made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in the utter seclusion. As I was woven together in the dark of the womb, you saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I cannot even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, you are still with me. We're God's workmanship. We're God's children. We are God's greatest investment. He put his time, effort, energy into us, and he's going to stay with us. He's going everywhere with us, and he's not going to leave us alone. Ephesians 2.10 says, God has made us what we are. In Christ Jesus, God made us to do good works, which God planned in advance for us to live our lives doing. We're God's workmanship. He is the 
we are, rather, his tangible act of love. It is something that he can put his hand on. He can look down and say, you know what? This is what I did. He loves us that, that much. He's never going to leave us alone. We're God's children. Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5 says, I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. Before you were born, I set you apart and appointed you as my prophet to the nations. Oh, sovereign Lord, I said, I can't speak for you. I'm too young. The Lord replied, don't say, I'm too young, for you must go wherever I send you and say whatever I tell you. And don't be afraid of the people, for I will be with you and will protect you. I, the Lord, have spoken. I received a book this week. It's entitled Letters to My Dad, Diary of a Preborn Daughter. It's written by Joel Patchen, and I just want to share a couple of, a couple of excerpts from it this morning. Um, Joel goes through and, and starts with, with day one from conception and, and writes as if he's this preborn daughter and uh, writes to, as, as she writes, to her dad. And it's just absolutely incredible. And, and obviously it comes directly out of Scripture. Uh, many of these quotes in here are um, directly out of Scripture. Let me read you a couple of pages here. It says, Today I was created by God. Oh, I'm sorry, I missed a part. Dear Daddy, <laughs> Today I was created by God. I cannot articulate my creation adequately, but it was in a flash of light. All the colors of the spectrum shone forth, and I knew I existed. My body, imperceptible. As my newly formed DNA teemed with life, although I could not yet move in all my fullness, my soul felt its worth. As my genes worked feverishly to reveal the beauty that is in me. I think every person God creates must be beautiful. How could anyone fashioned by his grand hands be anything less? Yesterday, I was known only to God, but today I'm known to myself and God. I feel privileged to be writing to you about my life in the womb. Mommy will be the first to feel me, but I want you to know my mind's intimate counsel and my soul's secrets. Cherish this diary, Daddy. I'm not quite sure the purpose it will serve, but I sense it is something important and worthy of writing. Today, no doubt, you are oblivious to my presence and existence, but I want you to know that I'm overwhelmed by life and the joy of being. I look forward to meeting you in the future, but for now, I must rest. I sense there is much work to be done. Day six. Dear Daddy, my cellular growth has been intense, exhausting, and exhilarating. The adrenaline of creation is amazing. I wonder if anything in my life going forward will match this productivity and excitement. Each moment is filled with newness, achievement, and grandeur. It's as if I'm copying myself a hundred times, but each new version has a different mission and, and, and or purpose. I can't imagine what I will experience upon completion of my development, but I think no work of art could compare with me. God's work is wonderful, and I feel His, his pleasure as I am being fashioned in His presence. I'm grateful to God for allowing me to write this diary through his supernatural power. For without it, it would never be possible. And I might come to forget the miracle that transpired here and its profound impression on a girl not yet a week old. Daddy, did I mention I'm traveling? 
I'm not sure exactly where I'm going, but I sense it's going to be a beautiful temple of preparation, a sanctuary of peace and safety. Whatever the destination, I'm enjoying the journey. Do you remember your first days of life? I'm sure you, you too must have had a wonderful story of beginning a new life. Oh, Daddy, I'm so happy to be alive. I can't wait to experience tomorrow and feel the joy it will bring. Gotta go. I feel something amazing is about to happen. Day 8. Dear Daddy, My day started abruptly as I slammed into what felt like a very sturdy wall. I was taken by surprise and jostled about from the impact. But after an initial friction, I felt as if I was being cuddled in a warm, soft blanket. It was an overwhelming sensation of comfort and trust. I gave myself wholly to the experience and reveled in the bliss for, for what seemed like days. The sheer height of ecstasy. Where I have been before was nice, but this is sublime. I know for the first time what it felt like to be part of a home, part of a family. I could feel mommy's presence, and I knew she was strong and capable of protecting me. Joy flooded over me as I realized she was made for this very purpose, and by the same hands that were fashioning me. I wonder what she's like. Is she tall, pretty, gentle and caring, funny or serious, intellectual or imaginative? Does she have dark or light complexion? What is her age? Does she sense that I'm alive? Or can she even guess at the miracle taking place inside her womb? As I contemplated the mystery of mommy, I began to imagine my own mysteries. Would I be, would I be like my mother or my father? A combination of the two or something altogether different? Could I be tall or pretty? I began to marvel at all the discoveries that awaited me and all the things I would learn and experience along the journey of life. Daddy, I can't wait for tomorrow. Surely it will fill, be filled with amazing joys and things too wonderful for me to know. One last thing, Daddy. When you read this diary, please tell mommy I love her and that I am grateful for everything she's done for me. I'm so blessed to have her for my mother. I know God chose her for me. Day 20, day 23 rather. Dear Daddy, wow, what a day today has been. Yesterday I worked all day making cells, laying down blood vessels and, and fighting fatigue. God gave me this important job of making clusters of, of mesoderm cells, which he said would form vital pathways for blood distribution in my body. I worked hard and, and whenever I felt I couldn't go any longer, I cried out and said, give me faith, I trust in you. As soon as the words left me, I would receive a pulse of energy and be able to continue my task. About midday, while I was still busy working, I felt God's warm hands at work in the center of my being. He was forming a clump of cells in a squiggly shape, sort of like the letter S. As he worked, great heat was generated and released in a cloudless vapor. After a rush of energy and connection, he spoke. At the breath of his mouth, I felt a surge so indescribably strong that I worried I might explode. 
And then out of my gasp, I heard a beat, low and powerful. And my whole being surged with energy and vitality. When I gathered myself from the shock, I asked him, what was that? He responded with these words, I've just formed your heart, little one. Oh, daddy, it's marvelous. Now I see the power of faith and the goodness of God. A few days ago, I, was thought, I, I thought my brain was an engine, but I see now. I was wrong. Nothing can match the power of my heart. My brain is the control room, but my heart is the reactor, a power plant connecting to, to connected to my soul. With the gifts of my brain and my heart, I know I can complete whatever remaining tasks God has for me. Rejoice with me, Daddy. I'm so amazed by God's provision and His care for me. I feel different today. It's as if somehow I belong to a greater family or group as if, I, as if I'm part of something beyond myself, part of a community. I share a fellowship with all humankind. What a journey it, this has been. Celebrate today with me, Daddy. I'll never forget it. Here in this moment, my hopes have been realized, and I'm certain my unseen heart has all it needs for life and love. <laughs> God put us together for purpose. And God's never going to leave us. He's always watching us. He's everywhere we are. And he's not going to leave us alone. He made the greatest investment in us. He put us here on this earth on purpose for a reason. And he's not going to leave us alone. And that's a beautiful case. Beautiful, beautiful thing. So I, if I get this whole thing that God's watching and he's everywhere and that he won't leave me alone. If that's the case, then why did he allow that to happen to me? Why did he let me feel that? Why did he take me down that road? Why did he allow that to happen to me? Why did he take them away from me? God is still there, even when life is unfair. Psalms chapter 139, look at verse 19. David becomes very honest, and he says, God, I wish... You would kill the wicked. Get away from me, you murderers. They say evil things about you, God. Your enemies use your name thoughtlessly. Lord, I hate those who hate you. I hate those who rise up against you. I feel only hatred for them. They are my enemies. If only you would have taken that hurt away. If only those enemies would have been annihilated before I happened onto them. If only the wicked would not have been a part of that scenario. Life would have been so much better. But think about it. If that's the case, if that were the case, if God would have removed evil, if God would have removed enemies, if God would have taken all of the pain of sin away, then what would have life been like? We would all be 
drones, walking around, following along the same path as everyone else before us. In God's infinite love, he also allowed us to choose. And along with choice comes things that are not fair. But the beautiful thing is God's still with us. He's not going to leave us. He's going to go right with us right through those tough times. And think about the man who wrote it. Man, what? He has amazingly awful things. And God was still right there with him. God's still going to be there even when life is unfair. And lastly, God's waiting. God's waiting for us. God's waiting for us to allow him to intervene and to take on what it is that we know to be life. Verse 23 of Psalms 139 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out everything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. God's waiting. God wants all of us. God wants each and every individual that he fashioned, that he formed, that he put together, that he brought here for this time and this purpose to allow him to search, allow him to know your heart and know your anxious thoughts, allow him to point out the things in your life that offends him and allow him to lead you on the path of everlasting life. True value, true appraisal comes and is only found in the eyes of the beholder. I have this great ability to find things of little value to one person and turn around and sell them to someone else that thinks they're more valuable than the person I bought them from. I bought a Jeep Cherokee just the other day, and um, it was a piece of junk. It had potential, and I saw the potential it had, and, and it had old man-looking features all around it, <laughs> and, um, which I'm not offended by, but, you know, they are what they are. They had kid chrome hubcaps on this Jeep. It's like, you cannot have a Jeep in Colorado and have chrome hubcaps on the Jeep, right? But anyway, so I bought it for a little bit of nothing, and I fixed it up a little bit, and then I sold it for significantly more than I bought it for. What gave this Jeep its value? I didn't research Kelly Blue Book and NADA. I don't even know what NADA stands for. Kelly Blue Book or NADA for the value of this Jeep when I bought it. I went to the young man and I said, this Jeep is this, this worth this much to me. Are you willing to sell it to me for that much? And he said, yes. And then I did a little work on it, cleaned it up a bit, put some really cool ribs and tires on it. And I advertised it for significantly more than what I bought it for. And the young man that came and bought it fell in love with it. He's like, yeah. And offered me exactly what I was asking for. And I'm like, yeah, I'll take that. <laughs> but what gave that Jeep its value? Well, when I bought it from this young man, the value that I was willing to pay for that Jeep is what gave it its value. Now that Jeep has a different value 
because the young men that bought it saw it as more expensive or having more value than what it was when I bought it, right? So what gives something its value? It's basically what a person is willing to pay for that item, right? So any item that you see in the world in existence today, uh, maybe it's a book. And you, some of them even have a, a suggested value. But really, a suggested value doesn't do any good. Cameron, where's your tag? Do you still have it in your pocket? This is a great example. The dress that Cameron is wearing today still has a tag on it. And it says MSRP. What does that stand for? Manufactured Suggested Retail. Andrew, could you read the Manufactured Suggested Retail on that? How much does it say? It says $118. If my daughter paid $118 for that dress, she would not be wearing that dress. Well, maybe she would, but she'd be laying flat and maybe six feet under. The manufacturer thought that that dress was worth $118, and I don't know, they probably inflated it by about $100. How much did you pay for that dress, Cameron? $2 and what? $2.68. Now that's what I'm talking about. And that's why she's still above ground. What gave that dress its value? It's what someone was willing to pay for it, right? So what is your life worth? What is your existence worth? How much are you worth? What is your true value? Remember, value, your value is based on what someone is willing to pay for you. What was the price that was paid for you. The price paid for you was Jesus Christ, the Son of the Most High, dying on a rough wooden cross so that you could have life. So that you could have a possibility of spending the rest of your life in eternity with God Almighty. The price has been paid. What are you worth? What is your true value? The appraisal's been made. It doesn't matter what anybody here on this earth says. It doesn't matter what you see in the mirror. It doesn't matter what you value yourself at. Your price has already been paid. Your value has already been stated. And there's no changing it. It doesn't matter if all of us would have been alive or if just you, Jesus Christ still would have done it. He still would have paid the price for you. God's waiting. All he wants is for you to come back to him. I get confused. I get confused about what my true value is, what my appraisal is. And as I wander through this crazy, confusing world, my value tends to be diminished because I'm distracted by everybody and what they think my value really is. 
and how I'm treated. I have to readjust. I have to recalibrate. I have to clarify my appraisal because the price has been paid. The, the appraisal is cut in stone. It's been made. God's message, your move. I don't know what you're going to do with it. I don't know what you're gonna, how you're going to take this. I, it may go in one ear and right out the other. But I'm hoping that as you think about your true value, as you think about what God's appraisal of you is, as you think about your self-worth, it has nothing to do with anything but God. And he's right there. He's watching. He's watching every move. And he's, he's everywhere. And he's not going to leave you alone. He's going to be right before you and he's going to be right behind you. He's going to be, if you go way over there, he's going to be way over there. He's always going to be with you. God's never going to leave you alone. And God's there even when it's unfair. Even when life is, is not treating you kindly, he's still there. God's waiting. He wants us to allow him to search and find what it is that we need to correct. Let's be, some, uh, let's be some high value individuals today. Let's be some that know our value from God's perspective, not from everybody else around us. There's extremely valuable people sitting next to you today. And as you move into your discussion groups or as you go into your kids' class, know that you are with people that have extremely high value and treat them like they, they have value because God said they do. And God's not only watching you, but he's also watching them. He's got them just like he's got you. Thank you for your attention. I hope that there's been some things that we've been able to share today that have been a blessing to your life. And uh, 